Welcome to Canva Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, clarify your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the word hope. Hope means different things to different people. To me, it's an action verb that closely aligns with faith, trust, and desire, as well as a noun meaning someone or something upon which our desires or wishes are centered. To discuss hope, I've turned to my dear friend, Danielle Gelfan, who is a multi-platform storyteller, executive producer, and writer. She develops content for all mediums, long form, digital, and written. At VH1, our former mutual home, Danielle developed and oversaw hit series like the Love and Hip Hop franchise, along with hundreds of hours of docu-soap, reality, and relationship shows. The list of A-list celebrities Danielle has directed goes on for miles and includes people like Mariah Carey, Madonna, and Diddy. Oh, the stories. Her writing has been published in Salon, the New York Post, and most recently in the New York Times with her essay, The Wedding I Thought Would Never Happen, which is a beautiful story of hope. Danielle is currently writing a memoir about overcoming her traumatic past to find late blooming love and family. And I could not be happier that you're here and that we were able to make this work. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. It's so fun to talk to you. It's always fun to talk to you, but now we have microphones. Talk to me a little bit about how you have found hope, because this turns out to be a big theme in your life. And when did you figure out it was a theme in your life? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, hope has been a central theme, not just in my life, but in my parents' life in different ways. My mother is a Holocaust survivor. She, when she was a little girl, she and her family fled uh, Antwerp in the middle of the night um, and spent six years on the run from the Nazis in Morocco um, and through North Africa. And, um, you know, she came back when she was a teenager and most of her family and friends had been killed. Um, And she came to the States by herself when she was 20 on a boat for eight days, knowing no one in search of a better life. Um, So, you know, that's a really powerful story of hope. Um, And on the other side, you know, my dad, who really struggled with um, depression for many years, but especially like in the 80s, when people really, you know, it was taboo and secret and all those things. You know, he killed himself when I was 17, um, two weeks into my freshman year of college on the eve of Yom Kippur. And though I'm not religious, um, you know, that's the day of atonement. So unfortunately, um, and tragically, my dad's story is kind of the end of hope for him. And so, you know, it's something I think about every day. I never, I never thought about the word so much, but I, but it is something that has impacted me daily in the choices I make and um, in my outlook and, you know, the kind of people that I interact with. And for what I hoped for myself, really, you know, to me, um, hope is also an action word. And it's really about the idea that like life can change in some way, shape or form for the better. And, you know, where you are today does not necessarily mean you'll be in the same place tomorrow, you know? Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking is in the intro, I talked about hope as an action verb, you know, closely aligned with faith, trust, and desire. And as I hear your story, I also realize how much hope is connected to resilience. It is 100% connected to resilience and, and perseverance. Mm-hmm. And seeing, you know, where, 
how these things intersect for you, because just as I've known you for so many years now, seeing and hearing your story and understanding how this comes up again and again in your personal story, in your professional story, and now the intersection of as you're writing your memoir, right? You know, right now we can dive into the story of the wedding I thought would never happen because it is such an encapsulation of what we're talking about on this episode and how for people who are listening to understand personal hope and then, but also the, the, the sticking with it is anybody who's a creative and a media to, and to keep going. Right. Um, well, after my dad died, um, even before I was super interested in TV and film and writing and probably also influenced by my mom, who one of her dreams was to become like a Hollywood actress. So the Hollywood bug was sort of, you know, around, even though I never in a million years wanted to be on camera. But I always was interested in writing and producing. And so, you know, especially when my dad died, you know, it was the very beginning of my college career and sort of my self-identity, if you will. Like I had gone to college really hoping to like build a new life. And I also, um, you know, had struggled with my mate, my weight for many years and, you know, always turned to food for comfort. And what I found was that it was really like an amazing coping method without knowing it. Um, but to put all my energy and attention on like this idea that I wanted to be a TV producer, writer, director, whatever that meant. So first in school, it was a shield in many ways, like, because I had this focus. And so I'd be like watching movies instead of going to a party. And, you know, I had never dated in high school and I was really self-conscious because I was overweight. Um, and that people also were really in, like, I was rewarded for the idea of, you know, it's like, it's awesome if you're super focused and you're pursuing your passion. And so after college, I came to New York and Though I was rejected by, um, I also wanted to be a soap opera writer and I was rejected as a writer's intern for As the World Turns. And I was like devastated, like devastated on a level. Like, you know, I, I was like, I couldn't believe it. And my mom, who is a super hustler, like, well, you know, leave no stone unturned and who I learned so much from um, and still do. Like she talked to someone on the train on Metro North who was reading The Hollywood Reporter. And from there, I got an internship at New Line Cinema and like, you know, working for someone who I don't know what her actual job was, but like I went and got her tampons and like whatever. It like got me my first gig. And then my mom came to the rescue again when I graduated college and was like, I'm here and in New York City. And and she got me a job as an interview working for Lauren Michaels production company, Broadway Video for the development department. And um, that's a pretty big in for a first job. It is a pretty big in. I mean, I made like $200 a week and um, they paid you in like food. Like they, you know, like you could order off of Lauren's account, like all these super fancy restaurants for like lunch and dinner and breakfast, like a sort of crazy, but um, you know, it was my first entree sort of into the universe there. What did it teach you about working with talent or observing? Cause that there's a lot well, going on there. That leads to another story, which is um, on my first day, I got stuck in the elevator. It was in the Brill building and I got stuck in the elevator with Woody Allen and like the door shot. And I had like just written a paper on Woody Allen or whatever. And he sort of sunk into a ball and, you know, they had like a button you would press and they'd be like, what's it's like these elevators were notorious for getting stuck. And so they're like, who's in there? And I was like, oh, like me and Woody Allen. 
And he, I, he just sort of completely like ignored me. And I was like, I just wrote my thesis on you. And I should have picked, picked like Scorsese or something like you're a jerk. Like, I mean, cause he just, he was like panicking, but he also like wouldn't look me in the eye. And I was like, you suck. And I didn't say that loud, but that's what I was thinking in my head. And then like the fire department thinks they had to like pull us out. Like it was a whole dramatic thing. So I showed up on my first day of work, like 45 minutes late, like covered in dust. And forever I was known as elevator girl. And um, I was there for like two years. And so that sort of set the tone. Like New York is your backdrop, but like it was like the, it wasn't Sex and City. It was like a wacky backdrop of just sort of all these people. And because you're working for Lauren Michaels and SNL, like, you know, I think I actually met Lauren like twice for four seconds because he had his life at SNL and he had Broadway video and they were separate. But the people that were brought in were amazing. And the same boss, he sent me to all the, like a lot of the talent auditions and things, like when he didn't feel like going or whatever, including when they were looking for who would end up being Conan, like all the people who auditioned and the music people, like I went to some like East Village studio um, to hear John Lurie play. And it was like me and all the like middle-aged white dudes for NBC. Uh, So I got to experience, like I thought it was really fun and wacky and also like storytelling and high stakes. And, you know, Scorsese did have an office on our floor the other end of the hallway and so it always smelled like Italian food because his mom was cooking like it I got to experience a slice of New York you know really quickly but those years at Saturday Night Live there was someone who had said to me you know I had always MTV had like been my dream but I it was really hard to get into and he was like you know what you need to be like out in the world like you are not you shouldn't be stuck behind a desk answering phones for these dudes and so that is how I finally got into like the world of MTV but not with like many steps sort of in between. But my personal story is that I loved TV, but I also, you know, in all the years that I was working in TV, I was working long and crazy hours as most people in TV do. And um, it was a really insular world. I had tons of friends who were also like editors and producers, and we all like sort of lived together in this universe. And I was traveling all the time and doing a really good job of avoiding like my personal life and the pain of sort of all the things with my dad and my family and my feelings about myself. And, you know, I just while my friends were dating and also working crazy jobs, but paying attention to their personal life, you know, I was kind of home alone. And I just sort of had this equation in my head, like maybe you get one thing in life, like maybe you get an awesome career, but you don't get a boyfriend or marriage and family or kids or, you know, I just completely discounted myself, which is the antithesis of hope. There was a point where the cracks were already forming, like, I was watching other people as I was in my early 30s, like getting married and having children and feeling which I think is a really common thing in New York that all of a sudden you look around and like you're the last one standing and sometimes it's like you know New York is a city of ambition and people don't come to New York I don't think to find love they come to New York to chase their passions and to follow their their professional dreams and so I was really excitedly took on a world tour with Mariah Carey and um, and it's where the the piece I'd written for the New York Times was born out of that I, you know, I was like 32 and, um, and I was like 180 pounds or something. And I, you know, I didn't feel very good about myself, but I, I had taken on this project and had to create a documentary out of like nothing out of, you know, three months of being on tour with her and her entourage 
uh, in I think six countries or six continents. I can't remember which, maybe both. And one lonely hotel room after the next, you know, suddenly this life I created did not really feel very good. And I just walked back to my hotel room after like a long day of shooting on Thanksgiving alone by myself. And that is when, you know, you sort of can't outrun yourself in a hotel room when you're by yourself and it's really quiet. And I was like, you know what, something has to change here. And so that was kind of the beginning. And it was the beginning of me not only opening the door to the idea of like, well, maybe I could like have a partner, like, you know, like a, a glimmer of hope. Like, what if I was wrong? What if my thinking about myself, that I was unlovable, that I was deeply ashamed of like, that I had, I was a virgin, like until my late thirties. But at the time I was 32, I had never been on a date. I had never been kissed. And I really genuinely like accepted in my head that something was wrong with me. And that like, it was a, this big secret. I mean, it's nothing I actually even ever said to anyone ever, you know, until my late forties. But yet there was a glimmer of hope. There was like, there was a crack in the, my thinking that I was like, what if I'm wrong about myself? And like, how do I change course? And I think the thing is, and this is where the idea of like hope and action sometimes don't align. I had always been a doer. I'd been a really good student. I'd always been a hustler. I was really good at working and achieving and all those things um, and taking care of other people. I had been both my parents, more or less caretaker. I'm an only child. Like I took care of my mom. I always put her first. So to me, that meant like when I got home and, and, and I was like a professional planner, right? There's no one who's more of a planner than a producer. So when I got home, from that trip, I actually, like, I talked to my bosses who I loved so much. I kind of just said, like, hey, I'd love to maybe not travel so much. And that's like a risky thing to do, to say something you're known for, that you're loved, that you're like in the action and you can take on these crazy people. I'm like, I'll do whatever nut jobs live in New York, I'll do. But can I just bring it down a notch? And they were amazing and like, okay, you know, and I was doing, overseeing more clip shows and stuff. So I didn't have to travel as much because I realized the first thing I needed to do was like to change my priority list. At the time I was like, like make love a priority, but also make myself a priority in this part of my life. But I was like, maybe I just thought I could produce it in my head. I kept running these numbers like, um, okay, I could have my first boyfriend at this age and then my second boyfriend at this age, and then I can meet the person. Then I would have a baby. Like I, you know, I was like running these crazy scenarios that are like unrealistic, Hollywood-esque, what have you. And I sort of jumped into dating, like, which is in New York City, highly competitive, mid 30s, people who have been like a thousand relationships. Like I was like, you know, like, <gasps> I did want to point out, though, it, it's really important. You acknowledge that it was risky when you went to your bosses and said, hey, I, I need to change. But it's really powerful because you advocated for yourself and put yourself first. And it reminds me of something I thought was so well articulated in Elaine Welteroth's memoir that asks for what you want because you might get it. Yes, I think asking for what you want is like a really, really, really important skill. Um, and actually, you know, it's weird because, uh, you know, now I have a four year old. And so I was just telling our teenage babysitter who was like, just pay me whatever you want. I'm like, no, man, like. 
set the tone, give me a price, like not like, Oh, don't undersell yourself. Like, you know, and so. Which you had done to yourself your whole life, which I totally understand. And as women, it's, it's so universal, but it is a reminder. We undersell constantly. But in, you know, I think the interesting thing is like, I undersold my personal life. However, every single person on earth had always said, like I had an enormous sense of self confidence as a professional person. And that was like noted since I was a kid, like, and a lot of that is that, you know, my mother, especially because she's a child of war and she really wanted to go to, when they returned to Belgium, when she was a teenager after the war ended, like she wants to go to high school and her father really wanted her to um, work and to get married. And she said, no, which is part of the reason she came to this country. Like she was always like, call the highest person when I was a kid they redistrict our schools and I wanted to go to the school with all my friends. She's like, all right, we'll call the superintendent and make an appointment and go talk to him. So I went and met with the superintendent. I brought my dog and my best friend like, as backup. And uh, it didn't happen, but she was like, take the meeting, like, you know, go to the top. And so- um, That's incredible. I hope everybody stops and rewinds and listens to this part and just how we apply that to everything we do in life. So- Walk us through, like, what keeps you going? What are the tools that you're going to? Because it is, there are like, it's not just frogs, they're toads. There's like this whole swampy, boggy, it's just like gross, murky depths of dating in New York. Well, I think it's not just New York though, but it's like, so because I like literally had the emotional language of someone who was like 12, like I just, you know, like I like, and I loved rom-coms. Like I like locked myself in this whole universe. So unlocking myself and also like not telling anyone like I never told like my best friend I never told anyone I just all of a sudden was like okay well I'm gonna try to like go dating online like and it was really hard to get a date and that continued for like many years I think many people struggle with that I sent out lots and lots and lots of emails and um what I did do in the beginning was I like first of all the idea of transformation is like my most favorite subject of all time and from a, a, like a really superficial level, like I love eyeshadow and lipstick and makeup and hair and clothes and all those things to a really profound level of like what a real shift means internally. I love it all. So the first thing I did was like, I started dieting and I got a trainer and I lost weight, blah, blah. And then, you know, and I was like online and, and I worked really hard to get dates. And I, I have been known always as a super determined person, no matter what it is. And so even though I had many, many, many long walks home and I was like super lonely and some really bad relationships and one-offs and whatever, um, I kept going. You kept showing up. I kept showing up. I mean, I think like I'm grateful I plugged on and also I'm grateful I continued to make it a priority because I think the really easy thing to do with dating or anything else in life like, is that it's easy to get discouraged or to have like one bad experience, then you back away and you say like, okay, I'm done. Or it's really easy to get distracted if your goal is not happening to just switch goals. That's such a great point when you said that you can't get distracted, that you can't go, this didn't work. So I'm going to give up on my goal and you do something else. So somewhere you're, there's somewhere that constantly this crack of hope, this belief that this is going to happen, which is amazing. So referencing the incredible essay from the New York times, the wedding that I thought would never happen. You're in your late thirties and the clock is ticking and you decide to freeze your eggs, which is incredible on so many levels. 
can you just dive into this and you know as, as yes. quickly as possible in the sense because it's like you do it and then you have the most extraordinary miraculous one in a million ending to this ever so briefly yes i continued to date and when i was like 38 and a half um i went to my gynecologist and you know my mom had had me at like 39.9 so i always had a reference point of having an older mother but i w- was in my gynecologist office and it was after a breakup and i just sat there and i thought oh my god this is never gonna happen and i just started crying and i said you know marriage and kids i just don't see that happening i just like i'm i'm gonna be 39 and he took my hand um and he said like okay I want you to think about freezing your eggs. And like at the time, it was 2009. Egg freeze was experimental science. And he said, there's one person I want you to talk to. Um, he's a former colleague of mine, and he's like the world egg freeze expert. His name is Dr. Jamie Griffo. He's at NYU. And like walking out of his office, I just felt such regret. I was like, oh my God, I, I jumped into this so late in the game. Like it took me so long to sort of face myself. And I have spent like years frantically trying to catch up and condense 20 years of life into like four years and it's not going to happen. And now I have to like do this crazy science fiction, forget it. Like, you know, but I made an appointment. I couldn't get an appointment for like six months. It was on April Fool's Day. I almost canceled it like a few days before. And a friend of mine was like, no, like go find out about your fertility. And the truth is like, it wasn't like I was dying to be a mother. I just didn't want it taken away from me. Like I had the idea and then suddenly to be like, oh my God, like this is it. And at the time, you know, like women now, egg freeze is something that happens when people are much younger. But at the time when I walked into the doctor's office and I brought um, my friend Tara, a VH1 producer, I just was terrified. And I was most scared that he was going to tell me I was infertile. I wouldn't be able to handle that in addition to being single and alone. But very quickly, I learned from Dr. Griffo, like the statistics of the chance of pregnancy over 40. And, and I made the decision that like any chance was better than no chance. At the time, it was like a 20% chance. So I said, all right, I'm going to do it. And um, as opposed to different things in my life, like I feel like because I was working in the universe of relationship shows and everyone knew I was dating, like I had been having conversations about dating, like with like two thirds of the TV industry. Like, I mean, like, but this, I was like, I am not telling anyone. I kept it to like two people. And crazily, my building at the same time had bed bugs. But like I moved into this hotel for two weeks. It wasn't in my apartment, but it was in all the other apartments. And, um, you know, I took out a big chunk of my life savings and I was like, this is it. And, you know, I started this cycle where they're, you know, pumping you up with all these hormones and stuff. And I'll be honest, the, another really surprising thing that happened is like, they give you these tests. And this thing I'd been so fearful of for years was that I was like, what if I'm infertile? And they came back and like, well, you, your numbers are great. And so I was like, oh my God, I was wrong about myself again. This thing I had been worrying about for years is actually not true. And so I'm really lucky that after one roller coaster ride, um, I had 21 eggs that were frozen. And that was an extraordinary number. And like every month can be different. But 21 eggs from a 39-year-old are very different than 21 eggs from like a 25-year-old, as I would learn years later. But I remember having a conversation, Dr. Griffo, who is like a world expert, called and was like, okay, so, you know, you have this number of eggs, da-da-da. And I was like, well, what do I do now? He's like, "Uh, go and live your life and call me when you found the right guy. 
And I was like, oh my God. So I hung up and then I like resumed my normal life, um, which I have to say, you know, like it got harder to date as I got older, but I kept doing it. And I think something really important is dating doesn't just mean like going on actual dates. Like I made myself go out once a week. If I couldn't get a date, I went to speed dating. If I couldn't, you know, if I couldn't do speed dating, I would go to like a lecture. I forced myself to speak to three people at any event that I was at. And, you know, sometimes I didn't make my quota of speaking to three people, but it was really about pushing myself to open up my world. Like, and keep and showing up. Keep showing up. And also, amazingly, like many things from my dating life have followed through in real life. So I went to, I realized I had like an entrepreneurial spirit that I really loved. And I went to a lot of Harvard, Harvard Business School lectures, which were open to the public. And, and from there, a different part of my life launched just, I, I didn't meet anyone, but I was like, oh, I really love all this other stuff. And I was really curious about side hustles and stuff that would affect me later. So anyway, I had also done more work that I always had a passion for writing, um, but I had focused on like the lighthearted stuff. And then I took a class um, with this renowned teacher named Susan Shapiro. And she teaches a class called like instant gratification, you know, get your personal essay published in five weeks. And her whole thing is like right from the darkest part, part of your life. Like the thing that is like, you never want to talk about, like, that's what you should talk about. So when I took her class, uh, I did not bring up anything deep and dark. I wrote about going on a date and my tooth fell out. And I was on a date with, um, interestingly, like another only child of a Holocaust uh, parent. And so she's like, well, what happened to your parents? And like the hair stood up on my arms. Like I was like, what? And it was all kind of the same year. I had just froze my eggs um, when I took, after when I took this class. And, and I really had no, I did not want to write about my dad. I didn't want to write, I was, I, I could, like my face was getting red anytime I talked and she really grilled me. And um, I explained that, you know, my father had killed himself on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur was coming up and Sue's whole MO about writing personal essays is to hook it to a timely event. And she's like, you got to write about it. Like Yom Kippur is around the corner. And with her coaxing, I wrote this essay about sort of my experience of guilt and my mom and I, like we um, celebrated Yom Kippur on the beach eating burgers to honor my dad. It was his favorite place on Yom Kippur, which uh, if you're a Jew, you know, like not kosher if you're uh, and that was the first time sharing part of my life. I didn't expect it to be in the New York Times. And um, my mother, who also never really told anyone what happened to my dad, like I ran every word past her, but it was a profound experience of sharing sort of who you are. Can I interrupt one sec? I want to really ask you, and if you were aware at the time, or it's more hindsight, how you felt and how it changed you, opened you up when you open up the New York Times and you see your name in print right. and it's your story and it's that story. Like how, had you integrated this yet into your being? I mean, I think that like it all happened really fast. Sue called me at like 11 o'clock at night, like nine o'clock and was like, okay, there's this one section of the Times I just thought of pitch them like now. And I'm like, I'm at a dinner. I'll do it when I get home. She's like, now. And so I like sent this email, like in the bathroom to the New York times with the draft. And they emailed back like 12 minutes later. And I'm like, Oh, and there was a one line, which was like, which beach does this take place on? Cause it was all about going to the beach. Like that was the opening of the piece. And so I told them it was my childhood beach in Greenwich, Connecticut. And, um, and then they sent me an edited copy, like four hours. Like by the time I woke up, they're like, okay, it's going to run 
in three days or whatever. And what did that feel like? Um, it felt scary because I had never, ever, though I was in therapy and it, so egg, I should say egg freezing, Sue's class, and also finding like uh, the therapist that really changed my life all happened within the same year, which was my 40th birthday around the same time. And I had read a million self-help books um, and I like circled the self-help section at the Barnes and Noble's bookstore, like a dog to a bone. Like, but, you know, so there were a lot of concepts that were open to me, but this kind of really connecting the dots was like another level. The first thing I did was I was like, uh, I just need to have my mom read it first. <laughs> like it was so fast. So I ran home and I, I went over every piece. Like they gave me, they give you till the end of the day to like put in your final edit. So I like, I, I hopped on a train and, you know, my mom really, especially as someone who did survive the Holocaust, part of it is about like, you know, always moving forward and moving forward in life. And, you know, we went through every word and she was like really proud and she was okay with it, but it was, she was pretty shell shocked. My main concern always was like, uh, you know, like, is she going to be okay? And she was like, I'm okay. So when it did publish, it was an extraordinary experience because, you know, it is the New York Times. And so I saw it go up and I was like, wow. And, and then, you know, the comments started rolling in, you know, it was the day Steve Jobs died. And then someone texted me and was like, oh my God, you're on the New York Times. Like you're the number one story on the New York Times. Like, oh, Steve Jobs is number two. And I was like, wow. You know, but more importantly, what was a profound experience for me was that like, I remember a coworker I didn't know very well came in my office and just started bawling. And I was like, oh my God, are you okay? And he was like, I just read your piece. And, you know, it really touched people. And like, I, I got so many people tracked me down, like a woman who was like 94, who had never told anyone that her father had killed himself, was like, I told the mailman today, you know? And so it was like a huge touchstone moment. And my mother- the power and the value of sharing your story. Sharing your story and also like my mother who had always kept this sort of stuff inside. I had a lot of shame and, mm -hmm. you know, we both had sort of for years been like, how could we have saved him? How did we not see? Like she, you know, so much of her own story was like um, shrouded in shame that like she saw, she started taking a writing class. She couldn't believe other people were sharing their stories. And that was born out of her sharing her own story. And suddenly she didn't see it as a shameful thing. She thought it as like an empowering thing. Mm -hmm. And the way she started telling people was she handed a copy to like her IT guy, you know, at work. She, my mom was still in her seventies doing or eighties doing real estate. And she's like, well, there's this thing that came out today. And he was like, this thing is uh, in the New York times. This is not, you know, like, like, this is amazing. You know, she just saw it in a different way. And that was, the beginning of of my mother and I being able to have conversations and about things that you know that were too painful mm -hmm. and so when I left VH1 I was like you know what I want to do now is I my mom's in her 80s and I want to have these discussions I don't remember because everything was so crazy those years mm -hmm. and so I spent time with her like at first she was resistant and it wasn't it was hard but she created a timeline. She pulled every document she had. And we went through all these really stories of things that I couldn't remember and put the pieces back together. Like I have mm. a narrative timeline of my life. And that was the most empowering thing. But I had given myself like you know, that all evolved from 
freezing my eggs, which also, it just made me be like, okay, you know what? I've done everything I can do. And I forgive myself for, you know, not taking the step earlier, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was huge. Um, And speaking to a therapist and finding someone, therapy is like dating. And I had a previous therapist that was like, not that helpful, but finding the right person. And also then like the power of writing, which um, I had always done and enjoyed, but this was like a different level. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, and I left VH1, I'm like, I'm gonna give myself, it was April 23rd. I'm like, I'll give myself till January 1st of the next year to like do whatever it is I wanna do. And then I have to hustle and find a job, whatever it is, like January 1st. So I didn't find a job January 1st, but I did find George, like (laughs) my now husband, you know, at that point I was, I just turned 44. So I was on OkCupid for a million years. Um, and then like at some point in December of 2014, I got like a note from OkCupid just being like, are you sure there's this one guy? He like his 99% match. You know, I looked at his profile and I'm like, oh, he's cute. And he was like fresh meat. He's a recent transplant from Philly. Anyway, we started communicating and we agreed to meet on January 1st. And uh, like George will say, he thought that was like the most hopeful thing. Like how awesome that someone would want to meet up. I'm not going to totally lie. I'm not sure when I said yes to a Thursday that I realized that it was January 1st. But when I did, I'm like, whatever, that's great. So I went and met George at a bar and restaurant, whatever it was in the West Village. And like I was late, my hair looked bad, I had a pimple. It was just like one of those things, but I went and we had the best time. And, you know, the word hope came up again. You know, like I, I had already made a decision with myself. I had had, you know, I, I had previous relationships where I accepted being treated less than or as like, you know, I'd be chasing after someone, even though they ch- treated me badly. And I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, And George was so kind and loving and I just felt like I could be myself with him and be honest about what I was looking for. And, you know, so uh, about like a month in, you know, I, I told him I had frozen my eggs and um, you know, that I was, I wanted a relationship and I wanted children. And even though I was 44 and, you know, he was like, when I told him about egg freezing, he said like, what a beautiful story of love and hope. And I was like, like, you know, and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, I'm done. Like, this, this is the perfect person for me. And, you know, less not perfect because he wanted children, but because that was his response, that he understood it was a hopeful thing. You know, I, I felt like I could be myself and and that was that. So, um, and life changed on a dime. And now you have Colette. You know, I will say motherhood um, has been amazing and also rewrote motherhood for what I thought about my parents and how I grew up. It just gives you a different perspective when you are one. And like maybe a year and a half in, I'd had like a close cousin. She was like, why aren't you married? Like, what are we waiting for here? And before I could really give her an answer, unbelievably, like a few days later, she, she died of an aneurysm. And I was like, you know what? I want my mom who was then 88 to like walk me down the aisle to George. And I want Colette in my other hand. And you know, and so I said, okay, George, I think I'm ready. He's like, well, what, what do you, what do you want? What should we kind of, what should we do? And so we decided to have our wedding at Frankie's, which is a um, well-known, very sweet little Italian restaurant that is around the corner from us in Brooklyn in the garden. And I had passed by many times when they were having weddings and like peered in and been like, oh, but this time I got to be the bride. It was amazing. And indeed, you know, I was a small group of people and, but it was, 
amazing to have Colette in one hand and my mother in the other, um, and to have this people group of people who had cheered me on for 15 years be there. Um, and Dr. Griffo was there as our guest of honor. And, you know, the person I was most excited for was my younger self. And I really had this sort of out of body life experience when I was like walking down the aisle and I thought, oh my God, like, I'm so grateful that she took all these risks. And I still, I write for her. I like, I, everything I do is really in reference to my younger self. Um, because I think I was so mean to her. Like, you know, as an executive, I would have been like thrown in like, you know, jail for like the kind of things I said to myself if I had said that to anyone else, you know, and yet like she kept going and I'm grateful. And I think about that all the time. And because of her, I'm living the life I am now. I, I think about this too, Danielle, because when your piece came out in the New York Times and I, I posted it on my Facebook group the reaction was incredible. And one person after another, and I'm sure you got the same reaction was what a story of hope. Oh my God, you're giving me hope. This is so much hope. And the number of people who mentioned that small part in the piece about the letter to your younger self that you read at the wedding. And it's so incredible. So the link to the article, by the way, is in the note section, the description of this episode so that everyone can read it easily. How can people connect with you? Yes, you can go to my website, which is daniellegelfand.com. And it has all the articles and clips and all those things. And you can be sure I'll be trumpeting when the memoir comes out because this is such an incredible story. And I'm always casting it in my head. So I want to thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing your story. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you would like to improve your communication skills, go to my website, ableintermedia.com and download my free 12 tips for success on camera. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And please tell your friends about the podcast. Mm -hmm.